Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Steve Ray and his talk, Moses and the Exodus, the Sacraments in Technicolor, recorded at the Gift of Faith Conference in June 2008. And now, Steve Ray. Okay, yesterday we talked about Abraham. We started with the creation and Adam and worked our way through Noah and so on up to Abraham and his whole life. And we left Abraham and his 12 great-grandsons are going into Egypt to become slaves. And now they're there 400 years. And I remember Abraham believed God and how devastating it was to hear that your sons, all the descendants, I promised you this land, but surprise, you're not going to get it yourself, nor is your son going to get it, nor is your great your grandson going to get it, nor are your grandchildren going to get it. In fact, for 400 years before they ever get it, I didn't tell you this at the beginning, no, um, Abraham, but at the, before they ever get it, they're going to be 400 years as slaves in a foreign land. And he had this in a terrifying dream at night. So he knows that they're going to be gone. So we left them off. Last night, they were in Egypt, and they're going to be slaves. They're under the pharaoh for 400 years. And I want to talk about the Exodus and the sacraments. That's what they asked me to talk about, is how do we see the sacraments in the Old Testament? Because remember, like St. Augustine said, the Old Testament is the new concealed. The New Testament is the old revealed. But before I get into the Old Testament and sacraments, I want to talk about what it is. We've all been taught there are seven sacraments. But in reality, there's only one sacrament. Father's eyes just got real big. (laughs) And there's only one priest, by the way, too. Jesus is the priest. The priests that wear the collars, they share in his priesthood. He is the priest. Just like Aaron was the high priest, the Levites shared in that calling. They were priests in service of the high priest. Jesus is the priest. The priests that we call priests today are in persona Christi. They are sharing in the priesthood of Christ. And there's really only one sacrament as well, one mystery, and that's Jesus himself. God became flesh. When you, when you walked through Jerusalem or Nazareth in the first century when Jesus was there, if you wanted to be healed, if you wanted your sins forgiven, if you wanted to be touched and blessed, you had to go find him. He was somewhere we last heard uh, on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem. So you get on your donkey and you take off to try and find. If you want to be healed by Jesus, you have to go find him because he's localized in one place. But the church now is the body of Christ. Guess what? No longer localized. It's everywhere. And there's still healing in the forgiveness of sins and the things Jesus could do. He still does today. But he now does them everywhere and a lot of times through the hands of the priest. And so the one sacrament is Jesus. It's the power that flows from him. But what do we find now is that in the church, Jesus is still working. He is, the body of Christ is the church, and he still heals and forgives, and the powers from Jesus still go out in the form of the seven sacraments, but it's still him that's doing it, the real one sacrament, the mystery, the oath that God has given to us. It's like channels of grace. I wrote a story one time called The Last Nightmare. It was one of those moments where I was just started... I had no idea what I was going to write. It was a letter to my brother, actually, who is not a Christian. He's 
somewhat of an atheist, and I thought I was going to write him a letter to tell him why I was a Christian. And it ended up being this 30-page story called The Last Nightmare, and a guy gets killed, and you're in his head, and he doesn't know what's happening. He just remembers the crunching steel and the screeching tires. And the next thing you know, he's being carried by these beings up through this channel. And, but a whole time, there's this gorgeous light and life and beautiful things coming through this channel. It's the grace of God coming through the sacraments. But he's, he couldn't stand it because he was a wicked sinner. And he ends up going to hell in this story. But anyway, but the, but the channel of grace, he saw it. And there was all just a constant flood of the life of God and the blessings of God coming through this big channel down to earth. And so these, this is the sacraments are the life of God. When, when the blessing of God, when the sacraments are there, what it is is it's grace. And as a Protestant, we taught that grace was an di- attitude of divine favor God had toward us. It wasn't a something, it was only an attitude God had toward us. God's grace meant that he treated us differently than we deserved because he had favor on us and loved us. And Catholics say absolutely it's that, but it's also the grace of the sacraments is also something else. It's the very life of God that he puts into our soul. It's a something in a way that you can lose, by the way, if you want to. You don't have to, but you can lose it if you want to by sinning and walking away. But that's the very life of God that he puts into our souls. And I say that the sacraments, there's something you need to have them work in your life. For example, after my talk, we're going to have lunch. And if the food's going to do us any good, we have to have digestive juices and amino acids in our stomach. Otherwise, the food's going to go in and come right out the other end tomorrow, and it's not going to do us one bit of good. And the sacraments also have a digestive juice. If you take them and you don't have this, they're not going to work the way God intended them. You know what it is? It's faith. When you come up to receive the Eucharist, the priest says, body of Christ. Catholics, most of them, unfortunately, say amen, but they don't believe it. They're just eating a piece of bread. What, 70% of Catholics don't really believe in the transubstantiation that something happens on the altar? And they say, amen, but they don't really believe it. People say, I've gone to the Eucharist, I've been baptized, all these things. Nothing ever changes in my life. I mean, what are you converts talking about? I can tell you the, sac- the sacraments work because I have gotten victory over sins in my life. I never dreamed I could do as a Protestant. And they say, why? And I said, I'm convinced in large part it's because of the sacraments, the Eucharist confession, these sacraments that now are richly giving us all this life. But I go up to the Eucharist, and when I say amen, I feel like shouting, yes, because I believe it. And that's the, di- that's the faith, it's the digestive juices. So when I take the Eucharist, there's the digestive juices work, and it does me good. Now, I'm not talking about whether the sacraments ex operato, this uh, the theology, but what I'm saying is that you need to believe these things. That's what, that's what makes it work in your life, what brings it alive. Okay, the Old Testament. People, Catholics, tend to not be interested in the Old Testament because it's old. Would you rather have old pizza or new pizza? I like new pizza. Old car or new car? Unless it's an antique. I mean, would you rather have a junky old rusty car or new? People think that the Old Testament isn't necessary because it's old. We should just spend our time on the new because it's new. And I have the attitude that we really should refer to them as F and F. The Old Testament is the foundational. The New Testament is the fulfillment. You can't build a house without a foundation. It's not going to last. The Old Testament's this thick. The New Testament's only this thick. 
Lots more in the Old Testament. It's the foundation. It's what God laid for the New Testament to even be there. The church wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Israel. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, King David, and Solomon, and the prophets, Elijah, Elisha, and all the others. That's the foundation. We wouldn't be here without them. We say in the Mass, Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Utter nonsense if you don't have an Old Testament. Lamb of God takes away sins. Lambs are dumb. This, you ever been around sheep? They're stupid animals. And you say, Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? What, in the, what kind of nonsense is that? Without the Old Testament as the foundation, there is no fulfillment. And so Catholics, if you want to understand who you are, if you want to understand what the church is, you want to understand who Jesus is, you better learn the Old Testament because that's where it's all foundational. The New Testament is just a small little book built on top of it. In a way, we, the church, are the branches and the leaves, the flowers and the fruit, but the trunk and the roots are Jewish. They are Israel. They are the Old Testament. That's what it's all built off of. In order to understand who we are, we need to understand what that is. I tell people, too, in the same line, that there's only one true religion, and they all wait for me to say it's Catholic because I'm a convert, but I don't. I say the one true religion in the whole world is what? Rosno's. It's Judaism. Now, before you all think I'm a heretic, why is the true religion Judaism? Because that is the religion God revealed at Mount Sinai. He revealed it to Abraham in a very kernel form, and he revealed it more at Mount Sinai, and he revealed it more through the covenants like with David and Solomon and the prophets. And who is Jesus? He is the Jewish Messiah. And why do I say Judaism is the true religion? Because that's the one God founded. And what is the Catholic Church but the fulfillment of Judaism? You pray the Hail Mary. Who are you praying to? A Jewish woman. Mary. Jesus was Jewish. The 12 apostles, they were Jewish. They weren't Americans. (laughs) We think that our Father, when they prayed it then, Jesus taught them to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, not on your life. Go on my blog and you can hear what the Lord's Prayer sounded like the way Jesus prayed it. You wouldn't have had a clue what he was talking about because he spoke Aramaic and Hebrew. So we are the fulfillment of Judaism because we believe. Remember we talked last night about the Jewish Messiah that many in the early church, the whole argument was that you had to become circumcised. If you want to become a Christian and follow our Messiah, Jesus, you have to first become Jewish and be circumcised, follow the laws of Moses, and then you can have our Messiah. But we have him by faith. And so we are the fulfillment of Judaism. You didn't know you were all Jews when you came here, but you do now. Now, I want to set the stage. 400 years of bondage. Why did God leave them in bondage for 400 years? Three major reasons, I think. One is, only 70 went down into Egypt. Now, God was going to give them the land, and the land was already full of people. How are they going to get the land? 70 people are not going to go in and say, God gave us this land, we're going to give you all an eviction notice, please leave. They're going to say, yeah, right, and pull their swords. And 70 aren't going to last long against the million or so people that live there. So God needs to give Israel the time to grow. So they go into Egypt, and for 400 years, God blesses them, and they have children and more children and more children until they grow to be a very large family, large enough now to come back to Canaan and to conquer. The Old Testament in the Hebrew uh, translation says there were 600 men carrying the sword. 
600,000, I'm sorry, 600,000 men who carried the sword. Now, that doesn't count the women and children. So, and, and statistically, it, it can happen. We've, we've done the statistics that you can take 70, leave them for 400 years, and they're blessed, and God, they can come out that many. So God needs to give them time to grow because they need to fight for the land. He's not going to hand it to them on a platter, just like he doesn't hand the spiritual life to you on a platter. You have to fight for it. And even Paul said, no, Jesus says that the violent take it by force. Heaven, something you have to fight for. You can't just sit back and think you're going to be holy and get all this stuff for free. You're going to have to fight for it. It's been paid for and given to you, but you have to work to get it. Just like the land was paid for and given, and God gave Abraham the deed to it, but Abraham and his sons and all of them had to fight to get it. So now they are enough to come out of the land of Egypt to get it. But also, God didn't want to be unjust to the Canaanites. You don't just remove people from their land, but the Canaanites were wicked. Remember, I talked to you last night about Abraham came to the land, thought it was a great place, and found out it was a country full of perverts. Sodom and Gomorrah. And so God did not want to punish the Canaanites until their sin became ripe and fall, ready to fall from the tree. And by that 400 years, their sin had become so wicked and so egregious that finally God said their wickedness was justified enough that he could wipe them out and move them from the land because they were living in such egregious violation of his laws and natural law as well. So now, after 400 years, they're ready to go. And then God also now, the pinnacle reason, I think, is he gets to show his power to these people. These people have been under slavery in the land of Egypt, which was a superpower of the time. Don't forget that Egypt was the superpower of the world. And they're they're in slavery to the superpower. And what is God going to do? His ability, he is going to earn their favor and their love. And he's going to earn their loyalty by coming in and bringing them out of the land and showing them his power and his might. And then hopefully they'll serve and love him and be fearful of him in a good way for the rest of their lives. They didn't do it. So Moses and the children of Israel are there, and God is now going to deliver them with a great deliverance, and he's going to show them how powerful he is, how mighty he is, and how much he loves them, and he's going to form his own nation now. And he takes them out. And he sends a deliverer, Moses, who is a picture extraordinaire of Jesus Christ. We talk about typology, and I don't want to talk much more about it, but a typology basically is a person a thing, event in the Old Testament that prefigures something in the New Testament or in the church. In other words, it's like a black and white picture that all of a sudden becomes technicolor, widescreen for you. For example, I'm just going to mention one, we're going to go through more. When the children of Israel went through the Red Sea, it's a picture of baptism because you have them going through the water and what's over top? The Spirit, water and Spirit. And they come through, God delivers them through water. That is a type. That is a prefigurement of what? Baptism. The Old Testament is full of these. It is full of stories that mean something for the New Testament and for your life. It is, it's not boring theology. This isn't boring stuff. This is really, really exciting stuff if you dive in. I say that when you go on the Sea of Galilee on a boat, and we always take our groups out on boats on the Sea of Galilee, it's a beautiful sight. You're rowing across, you go, you know, the water, you see the ripples, you see there's Capernaum, and there's the church of St. Peter, you know, Peter's church over there, and all, that's where he multiplied loaves and fishes, and it's beautiful, the seagulls and fish are jumping up, but beautiful view, but if you put on scuba gear, 
and flippers and a scuba tank and you dive off the boat, guess what? You're going to see a whole lot more under the water. It's not a different sea. It's the exact same sea that you were just rowing on. But if you dive in, you're going to see things under that are deep and rich that you don't see on the surface. And it's the same with the Bible. That's why I want to see Catholics studying the Bible because it'll make you rich and strong in what you know is true. And if you dive into the Bible, you'll also find these wonderful new world there. Raz's study on Luke does this. It brings out all of the meanings of the Old Testament that are there, and it comes out in who Jesus is in the New Testament. And so these are typology. Jesus, by the way, is the new Moses. If you don't think of Jesus as the new Moses, you're missing a whole bunch of good stuff about who he is. He is the new Moses, and we're going to go through a lot of that in just a minute. Even by the, just for the sake of when he comes to his people, what does he do? He goes up on a mountain right away. Whenever you hear mountains, you should be thinking, because mountains, they don't just mention mountains for no reason. He mentions a mountain. He goes up on a mountain, and it says he sits and teaches the people. Who does that remind you of? Matthew immediately is telling you, and by the way, the book of Matthew is written for the Jews to convince them that Jesus is the king. So when you hear that he went up on a mountain and sat, Jews always sat when they taught, and to teach the people, you know right away that Matthew's telling you this is Moses. This is the new Moses. And then what does he do? He gives them miraculous bread in the wilderness too, and what does that remind you of? But anyway, we'll get to that in a minute. In Egypt, Moses is there 400 years later. All these people are living there in slavery, making bricks seven days a week. There's no day of rest. And they're growing in number. Then God, it says, he looked down and he remembered his promises. He never forgot them. It's just a way of speaking for us. God remembered 400 years later that he had made these promises. And so God then brings Moses out of the wilderness at 40 years old. He takes Moses out into the wilderness to become a shepherd. Why? Because he knows for the next 40 years, Moses is going to be in the wilderness being a shepherd. But not for sheep, but for the people of Israel. God trains the shepherd to be a shepherd for 40 years ahead of time. Moses is out there in the wilderness for 40 years, learning the land, learning what to eat, what not to eat, where the water is, learning how to function out in the Sinai desert as a shepherd with real sheep, because then God calls him back 40 years later and he says, you go back and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. The people come out and now Moses is a shepherd, but he's been prepared to be the shepherd already. God is no dummy. He's smart. He knows how to do these things. Now Moses, he meets God out at the Sinai, Mount Sinai, the burning bush. By the way, the burning bush is another type. It's Mary. And if you don't believe me, it says so in the catechism. Mary is the burning bush. Why? Because within Mary is the word of God and it's the flame and holy fire of God is within her, but she's not consumed. Just like the fire, God was in the burning bush, but the bush was not consumed. And what came out of the bush? The word of God came out of the bush. What came out of Mary? The word of God came out of Mary. And there's a type for you right there to see already what's going to happen in the New Testament. So God comes and speaks to Moses, and for the first time he reveals his name. Up until then he's been Elohim, God. And they'll use the word Yahweh in the Old Testament, but this is the first time God reveals his name, Yahweh. Abraham didn't know him as Yahweh. He only knew him as Elohim, God. But now God says his name. Moses said, do you want me to go to Pharaoh? I'll go to Pharaoh, but you better tell me what your name is because I can't just go say a voice in a bush told me this. 
There's a funny joke. I remember I came back from this. George Bush is at the airport, and he, is, he sees this old man with a beard walking by, and he said, man, that looks like Moses. So he goes over and says, are you Moses? And, he, and the old man turns and walks away. He wouldn't talk to George Bush. And he, George Bush is persistent. He goes and he says, hey, you, I'm the president. I asked you a question. Are you Moses? And the guy turns and he walks away. So the Secret Service guy goes over and he says, just out of curiosity, are you Moses? And he said, yes, I'm Moses. He said, why wouldn't you tell him? He said, well, because the last time I talked to a bush, I got sent to 40 years into the wilderness, and then God gave me the only country in the Middle East that doesn't have any oil. <laughs> so Moses is talking to a bush in the Sinai Desert, and God says, go back, and he says, my name is I am that I am. Tell them that I am sent you. This is my name for all eternity. This is my name. I am Yahweh. So he goes back now and tells Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says no, and you know all the plagues and everything else. And by the way, all those things that Moses brought as plagues upon the land of Egypt were Egyptian gods. Frogs were gods. Cattle were gods. And what God did was it was the dueling gods is what it was. It was the war of the gods. God that created the heavens and the earth was one at a time destroying the Egyptian gods. You think you have gods? Okay, good. There goes that one. There goes that one. You worship cattle, pew, there goes that one. The Nile River, this is the God, the Nile River, pew, now it's all blood. He wiped out all of their gods and brought them out. That's why it is so stupid that they get out in the wilderness and they build a golden calf and say, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. How stupid can you be? I mean, that is really ignorant. But we do this ourselves. Don't forget, we do this kind of thing too. God saves us and does all of this and then we go out and have our own gods that we make. Typology. In Egypt... The fathers of the church saw Pharaoh represented the devil. Egypt represented the world. Slavery represented our bondage to sin. The three enemies of the Christian, the world, the devil, and our flesh and sin. And there is where the people of God were living in that condition. And God wants to bring them out and save them. So what does he do? He has the, all of the plagues, but then the key item is the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb is now slaughtered and his blood is put on the lintel and doorpost frame of the door. Thinking of this, that the blood is on vertical and horizontal beams of wood. Where else do you see blood on horizontal and vertical beams of wood? And you see it on the cross. Because Jesus is the Passover lamb and his blood was shed and his spilt on the cross. And here they're putting the blood of the lamb on the doors so that the angel of death would fly over that house and would not kill the firstborn in that house. So that had to happen first. And then once that happened, the Passover lamb, then the children of Israel were free to leave. Finally, Pharaoh relented. The devil said, okay, I'll let them go. They can leave the bondage to sin and they can leave the world. He's going to let them go to become Christians. He's going to let them go to become free people. So how then does Moses get them out of the, land, out of the world and away from sin and the devil? Through the Red Sea, which represents baptism. You think I made that up? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, Paul says, As the children of Israel were baptized into Moses in the sea with the cloud and in the sea, so you're baptized into Christ. See, I didn't invent typology. Theologians didn't invent it. This is the new Bible. Paul sees in the Red Sea a picture of baptism. How many of you have been asked, are you born again? 
just about everybody. Are you born again? Well, the Catholics should say. Well, most of the time their eyes glaze over and they say, boy, it's a hot one out there today, isn't it? (laughs) That's usually our answer. But the answer that a Catholic should give is absolutely I'm born again, but I'm born again the Bible way, which is going to get an immediate reaction, usually a dropping of the jaw. What do you mean you're born again the Bible way? You're a Catholic. But why do I bring this up now? Because Moses is leading the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, and he's going through the Red Sea, and up top of them is the cloud in the daytime and a pillar of fire at night. You have here water and spirit. Born again, Jesus defines it as water and spirit. I used to define it as accepting Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. Then I'm born again. But that's not how Jesus defines it. Jesus never says that you're born again by accepting me as your personal Lord and Savior. Just invite me into your heart. Those are all good things, but they're really all that language comes from 20th century American evangelicalism. It doesn't come from the Bible or any time in the early church. Personal Lord and Savior. I dare you to find that before the 1900s. Anywhere. But being born again, Jesus said, is through water and the Spirit. Unless you are born of water and Spirit, he says to Nicodemus, this is how you're born again. Nicodemus said, do I have to go back up in my mother and come back out again? He says, no. Unless you are born of water and Spirit, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And then he chides Nicodemus for not knowing this. You are the teacher of it, not a teacher of Israel. He says you are the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things. Why does he chide him for that? Should Nicodemus have known this? Of course he should have. The whole Old Testament is full of it. God is very boring. Every time God does things, he does them the right way. So he does them the same way over and over and over again. I do think, I'm always learning the hard way. This is why I have this hairdo, is because I learn everything the hard way. I'm much more interesting in some ways, because if you watch me, I'm a bumbling fool most of the time, learning everything the hard way. But God is smart. He knows how to do everything right the first time. And when he creates a new thing, he always does it the same way with water and spirit. You want to become a new creation in Christ? You do it by being born again. How? By water and spirit. Let's go all the way back to the beginning, since we're talking about typology in in the Old Testament. In the beginning in Genesis, the first two verses, how does God create the world? He creates the world and it says, in verse 2, that the was covered with water. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the water covered the surface of the earth. And what was hovering over the waters? The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Already in the first two verses of Genesis, God is starting something new and he's doing it with water and spirit. The water recedes, the land comes out of the water, God reaches down and he forms the man out of the clay. Can you imagine the scientific formulas that took place in that moment when God created the brain? We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For a copy of this program on Compact Disc, call 330-966-2903 or send an email to orders at livingbreadradio.com and reference the program broadcast date. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.